All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a special guest, Eric McCoy. Eric has spent his life around the world of substance abuse. He abused almost every substance imaginable with his preferred drug of choice being methamphetamine. In 2001, he reached his 10th arrest with four being within a six month period and facing 15 years in prison. He was given a miracle sentence and decided to change his life. He became a substance abuse counselor in 2003 and throughout the years has worked as a counselor, program director, clinical director, and executive director. He currently teaches at a school and wrote a book titled Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. He has a podcast titled High Wall Clean that implies highness not as a property of drugs, but a property of people. What he's seeking uh, today is nothing different than what he was seeking while using drugs, but he's found a way to achieve it without drugs. There are not side effects. He's found it through talking, relationships, laughing, and so much more. Eric, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me uh, what was, you know, it sounds like you kind of got down uh, uh, kind of a, a, a bad path, at least at first. Tell me about kind of, you know, your, your upbringings and, and kind of what, what ended up transpiring that led you down that rabbit hole. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I have great parents, um, and I, you know, unlike what the stereotypical, you know, scenario is for a lot of drug abusers, I, you know, we lived in great neighborhoods, we were not hurting financially, um, and I probably had, although I was never diagnosed with it, probably had depression, I had um, and I never felt like I connected with people, um, you know, even including my parents, I almost kind of felt like, and I, and I know a lot of, I know a lot of kids feel this way. My parents don't understand me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, you know, we talk about a gateway drug. I probably would say it was cigarettes. And, you know, from the moment that I tried a cigarette, um, I felt a huge head rush and I loved it. And so, you know, as I got into um, high school, um, you know, I had some experiences with alcohol and I just had this sense of, I just wanted to feel different. You know, I wanted, I liked the feeling that it gave me. I liked the fact that I didn't really seem to care about things. Um, and I think it definitely lifted that depression that I had. Um, I also learned throughout my lifetime that I have no ability for control. And once I do a little and it feels great, I wanna do a lot. Um, and my story really goes into you know, as you had kind of mentioned, I'd been arrested 10 times in my life. I was arrested four times before I turned 18. Um, the first one was actually getting really, really drunk and broke into the high school that I was at. We smashed computers, took stuff, just stupid things, um, and ended up 
you know, it was kind of a long story behind it, but I ended up getting arrested for that. Um, my parents being, I guess you could quote unquote, say enablers, they got me a great attorney. Um, and then my story, I think also revolves a lot around the fact that we moved a lot. And so I never had friends that I stayed with, you know, a lot of people and I hear, you know, people, oh yeah, these are friends I had in high school. You know, I know this person, I've known them since I was in junior high or even elementary school. I don't have any of that. I don't know anybody that I went to elementary school, junior high or high school. Uh, don't have any idea where they are because we lived in, I was born in Montebello, Southern California. We moved to uh, Northern California when I was in uh, fourth grade. We were there one year, moved to Pennsylvania, was there a year and a half, and we moved back to Northern California. Um, went to, to a certain junior high school. Then when I got into high school, my parents put me in a Christian high school, so another town. Um, and it was my sophomore year there that I broke into the school. And I think a lot of it was, you know, I wanted to have friends. I wanted to connect with people. And again, I didn't feel like I had that. I always felt that, that uh, you know, the friends that I have, they're never going to last. They're never going to be around. And so I just, whatever, latched onto the people that weren't the best, most responsible people in school <laughs> and doing the best in school. Um, but I liked that feeling of just being a part. I wanted friends and, and I was very, very thin. I was made fun of a lot when I was a kid. I got into a lot of fights and and so after that thing, of course, after breaking that school, I got expelled from that school. Then I went to another school and I was there for the rest of my junior year. Then we, then I ended up um, with a friend of mine. We ended up hot wiring these tractors. Uh, we started having wars with them. <laughs> I have a long story on that, but we ended, I ended up getting arrested for that. Originally I was charged with Grand Theft Auto, but then they ended up reducing it to joyriding. And I was given the option of either doing 30 days in treatment or um, two years in California Youth Authority, which is juvenile prison in California. And so I took the rehab, 30 days in rehab. Um, I got out of juvenile hall. And at this point in time, my parents were moving back to Southern California. So then I went again from Northern California. Now I'm back in Southern California. Um, again, no friends. But I went through this rehab and it was, and that's when I was ultimately first introduced to the 12 step program and you know, that whole scene of recovery with people. Um, I latched on great to the friends that I had met in the treatment program. Um, I stayed sober for a period of time. And then I had this idea that I just wanted to get away. And so I was on probation at the time, uh, ran away from home, and I ended up going to Cougar Hot Springs in near Eugene, Oregon, which I understand that's where you live. <laughs> and so ended up going out there and I just felt this freedom. There was a hippie commune out there. Um, we, I didn't do drugs at the time. The guy I was with was actually, we were all clean and sober. 
um, you know, sat in the hot springs, you know, did all that. And heading back down south, um, I ended up getting arrested for violation of my probation, um, put back, back in juvenile hall. I was transported from near San Francisco to Southern California by the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Um, and I was sentenced to 60 days in uh, juvenile hall. I did 30, they put me out on house arrest. And it's funny as I had gone to school and of course learned about, um, you know, like abnormal psychology and, and, you know, and I love psychology and we started studying, you know, the different diagnoses and stuff like that. And as I had learned all this stuff, I started looking at myself and I realized that I had so many traits of, um, you know, like a sociopath almost. Um, but I know it's antisocial personality disorder today, but um, I had all of these traits of like, I didn't care about people's feelings. I had no, um, you know, I ended up uh, on this house arrest. I got in an argue with my mom. I clipped off the bracelet. I don't know if I can cuss on this at all. But I said, you know, I'm, you know, I, I clipped off my braces, said, fuck you. And I, and I left and had no feelings whatsoever behind it. And I wasn't loaded at the time. And so I went to uh, my girlfriend's house in Fullerton, which was, you know, the complete opposite. Um, my parents lived in Southern Orange County, Fullerton's Northern Orange County. Um, somehow made my way out there and I don't remember how he did, but ended up getting out there. And um, of course it was probably the wrong place to go if I was trying to hide from the police. Cause then of course my parents told them that's probably where I went. And I spent the night there, got in an argument kind of with her. I left, forgot my jacket, went back to the house to get my jacket. And right when I did, the police showed up and they ended up arresting me again. So this was my fourth arrest, you know, prior to the age of 18. Um, and had to spend the rest of that 30 days in juvenile hall. And so that was my June, that was my, um, you know, adolescent years. Um, and it, and it was crazy cause I hadn't, I literally, there were times where I, I wanted to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life? And then there were the other times where I was like, you know what? I don't even care. I want that freedom. I just want to do what I want to do. And, and then when I was 17 years old, just about to turn 18, I ran off and ran off with the Grateful Dead. And so went to uh, or, uh, Las Vegas, which was the first show I ever saw. And I just loved it. I loved the scene. This is when I started using drugs again. Um, and, uh, and then of course, at that point in time, I had the opportunity to experiment with LSD, mushrooms, you know, and that whole scene and just loved it. You know, we were in Las Vegas and we traveled to you know, back to California, went to another show, then went to another show. Um, and then once they left the West Coast, I was kind of back in this, okay, what am I going to do with my life? Now I don't know. And, um, and then that's when I got into methamphetamine and I experimented with that. And, and that was just the greatest thing in the world. You know, I felt on top of the world. I had no depression. I felt 
pleasure. I felt good. I was able to, to communicate with people. Um, you know, and at that point in time, there was nothing but positive results that I felt. I mean, it, it's crazy, you know, how you can just, you know, do a drug and feel why is everybody saying this is bad? There's nothing bad about this. And that's the way I saw it. And, uh, and, there, and there was nothing bad for a period of time. Um, and, you know, obviously when you start abusing substances like that, um, you start destroying neurons, you start destroying your, you know, ability to think everything that was positive, obviously starts going away. Um, I start becoming very risk taking type of behavior. Um, and then I felt in my head, I was like, I got to get off this stuff. And so, and my brother was actually in uh, Chico State University. Um, I ended up going up there to get off methamphetamine. I went to the community college there and I started drinking. Of course, Chico at that point in time was the number two party school in the country, which I didn't really know at the time. And you could literally go to any apartment complex any night of the week and you could find a keg party. And I found them all. And I just started drinking, drinking, and drinking. And, um, you know, I ended up having uh, an experience where I um, ended up getting knocked unconscious. I was, I was literally punched in the neck. I hit the ground, had a two-inch contusion sticking out of my head, um, which kind of plays into later into my story of some major medical situation that resulted from that that I didn't really know. But, um, you know, it was, again, alcohol just at that point in time became the greatest thing in the world for me. You know, I felt uh, uh, even though downers were not necessarily my drug of choice, but it didn't matter. It's what was there. It's what was available. And I felt different. I felt like, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have to care again about things. And... So I did that for a while and then things got so crazy that I decided to go back to Southern California. Of course, Southern California had methamphetamine, got back on that. And, um, uh, and then the dead came to town again and ran off with them for a period of time on the West Coast. And then they left and again, I'm back to this, what am I going to do with my life? So then I joined the Navy. And uh, I unfortunately was not able to join active duty because of my criminal background at that time. So I joined the reserved, the reserves. And so I went to boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois, graduated, went to my A school in uh, Port Wyneme, California, um, completed that. And then I was set on, okay, um, now's your, uh, you know, you're going to go to your weekend stuff. And I left and the dead came back to town. So I'm off and running, going to the shows, ended up back in Eugene. Um, and we, and my friend and I that were there, we met a, these, this couple, this boyfriend and girlfriend up there, and they'd never been to California. And so after we had gone there, they traveled south with us and we ended up all getting an apartment in Mission Viejo. Um, and this is when I ended up learning about what could potentially come from a massive head injury that happened in, in uh, Chico. 
was I was sitting in my apartment. We were smoking weed. Um, I remember us talking about, okay, I'm going to take a big bong hit and I'm going to stand up really quick. I'm going to get that extra head rush. And I grabbed the bong and that's the last thing I remember. And the next thing I know, I'm on the ground. I got paramedics standing over me. I'd had a massive grand mal seizure. They took me to the hospital. They di diagnosed me as having an AVM, which is an arterial vesicular malformation. And, and I, um, and they wanted to do brain surgery. <laughs> and I said, dad, I don't think so. <laughs> and, you know, and I told him about the weed situation and uh, I think I was smoking weed that had to have been a part of it. And he's like, no, weed's not going to do that, but don't do stimulants because every time, you know, it's, uh, apparently with an AVM every year that passes by, you have a 4% higher chance of having an aneurysm. And I also had kind of missed a part of the story, but when we had moved originally down to Southern California, when I'd gone to treatment, um, I got a girl pregnant and ended up having a kid. I was 17 years old when I had my first child. Um, and I had no ability to take care of this kid. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the time I just sort of pretended like that wasn't there, you know? Um, and so I, and I didn't really take much responsibility for it. Um, but so after that seizure, um, I got back on speed, <laughs> which they said not to do. Um, you kind of think like, oh, the doctor doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I did that. And then there was a situation where, um, the couple that we had met in Oregon, we ended up, um, you know, getting all on drugs. We we're all doing meth. And the boyfriend, the guy thought was convinced that his girlfriend was sleeping with our dealer. And the reality being is I was sleeping with her. Um, and so there was a situation that had happened. The dealer showed up at our house. He thought it was her. They got into a fight and it got so bad that the girl that I was sleeping with, she decided to return back to Maryland because that's where she lived. And so she goes off to Maryland um, and I wanted to get back off of meth. So I ended up going out there with her. I got a job at a diner. We lived in a, um, a hotel. The diner that I worked with was connected to a hotel. Um, and then this was when I had an opportunity to start doing heroin. Um, we did a lot of ecstasy and, uh, they didn't have meth out there, which was sort of my mindset. Okay. I'm not going to get back on meth, but what's wrong with heroin, right? What's wrong with ecstasy or what's wrong with, you know, these other drugs? I don't have a problem with these. So this is okay. You know, that was like my crazy mindset that I had, you know? And, uh, I mean, you kind of think about that idea. It's like, that's not my problem. So I'm going to do heroin. <laughs> and so I ended up uh, doing all that. And of course, when you, especially when you put ecstasy or MDA or MDMA into the mix, um, she got pregnant. And so we decided that we wanted to get out of this hotel. So we went back to California. California had my really good friend, methamphetamine. And so I jumped back on that. Um, 
and uh, but she um, and she didn't do any drugs. That was the that was the great part about it was she actually was strong enough to not do the drugs when she was pregnant, which I know was hard for her because I was not a great support for it while I'm doing lots of methamphetamine. Um, and then it got to a point to where he was, you know, my son was getting ready to be born and she decided to go, I want to go back to Maryland. So I went with her, we went back to Maryland. Um, we got a, um, we ended up living in a trailer home out in Woodstock, Maryland. And my son was born in 1995. Um, and then we, um, I got a job with the painting company. And again, I was kind of back in that mindset. All right, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to do what I need to do. And, and I was for a while and I, but you know, at the same time I kept thinking, you know, so I was smoking weed at the time and I was drinking and it was, I was doing okay with it, you know, and that sort of changed my mindset. Okay. So maybe I don't have a real problem with some of these other drugs. And so, you know, even though alcohol was a huge problem in the past, I was gonna, you know, it was gonna be okay. And um, so I did that for a while. Then um, after living with her, we got into a big argument, got into a fight, I ended up leaving. I got another apartment in Eugene, Oregon, or not Eugene, Oregon, in uh, Laurel, Maryland. And, uh, and I ended up in 98, deciding to go back to California. And, uh, back to California, went back to my great friend, methamphetamine. Um, and that's when things started getting really crazy at that point in time. Um, in 1999, I got raided by the uh, Orange County Sheriff's Narcotics Task Force. Um, they were absolutely convinced they were going to find tons of guns, tons of drugs, um, because a girl had been on probation. She got arrested because she, well, she ended up violating her probation because they found meth in her house. And, and uh, so she decided to roll over on somebody to kind of help her situation and told them that we were big time drug dealers and we were, uh, you know, had arsenals of weapons, which we didn't, we didn't have any of that stuff. And so the task force was pretty pissed off and they didn't find that stuff. Uh, but I did get arrested for, for a possession charge and I was given the opportunity to do treatment. Um, and so that's what I did. I went to uh, Cornerstone and Tustin, a treatment program. Um, and I was, I ended up doing six months there. And the kind of interesting part, again, in my mind was, okay, methamphetamine is my problem, but I'm going to smoke weed. And so actually, while I was in the inpatient part of the program, I smoked weed. Um, this guy showed up and he had weed. And so we were kind of sneaking around the house, smoking it. He ended up getting busted and he got kicked out. I wasn't with him at the time. Um, they didn't test me when I came in. So they didn't have anything to compare the levels to that. I hadn't been smoking weed when I, I literally had not been smoking weed when I do meth. Um, and they, if they had tested me, they would have found out. I didn't have it in my system when I came in, but I was able to say that, no, I, don't, I was smoking a lot of weed. So I did come up with a positive drug test, but they couldn't throw me out because they couldn't compare it. Um, so I did 30 days there. Then I went to, uh, did five months of sober living outpatient at their program. 
um, and I decided to drink. And I drank most of the time that I was there. I had it figured out as long as I stopped drinking by three o'clock, they drug tested us or they breathalyzed us every night, which was usually about 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, so I kind of had the timing figured out. I could start drinking at 10 in the morning, stop at three, be able to blow zeros on a breathalyzer. And I did. Um, and I mean, and I, I think about it today and it's like, I mean, how can you say you don't have a problem when you're drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and so I had done that um, and uh, completed the program. The counselor even said, hey, you're great. You did a fantastic job. You're gonna be successful, you know, in this whole deal. And, um, and then I ended up moving back to Maryland because again, I didn't want to get back on methamphetamine. I had to stay out of trouble for one year. And if I did, then that charge that I'd had for the possession would get dropped. So I wanted to leave the state so I didn't get into trouble. And so I did, I went back to Maryland in 2000 and I started smoking crack. You know, I didn't have a problem with crack. It was meth I had a problem with, so I'm gonna <laughs> so I'm gonna smoke crack. Um, that didn't go well, um, and uh, and then it's and then in 2000, early 2001, I came back to California, um, and part of my story when I use meth, um, I actually become the epitome of the horrors and the quote unquote bad people of drugs. I commit crimes, um, I commit residential burglaries, I run around all hours of the night, um, I break into places, um, and I have no care for, in the world. I mean, that goes back to that, you know, you could probably diagnose me as a sociopath or, a, you know, in that category, because I had zero concern for anything or anybody. Um, I broke into my brother's house a ton of times. I would just steal anything that I felt was of value that I could make money on. Um, I was selling large amounts of drugs to uh, make sure that I support my habit. Everything was around methamphetamine. And it's really, you know, it's interesting with, and I try with my, you know, with my podcast and I kind of talk about some of this stuff is that, you know, the power of addiction and I always, and I correlated in my book and I talk about like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde scenario. You know, I do methamphetamine and I literally become that Mr. Hyde, you know, of, with the exception of murder and stuff like that, obviously, but nothing matters. Everything, everything about my life at that point in time is either using finding the drugs or making sure that I have what I need to make sure that I get it. And, um, and I would typically commit an average of 10 resi residential burglaries a night. I mean, people were home, obviously, luckily, um, nobody ever saw me. I was, I guess, apparently pretty good at it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was able to just gather lots of things. And, and so, Financially, I got, you know, I'd get credit cards, I'd get, you know, the big, living that lifestyle of, you know, the, the big hotel rooms on the top floor, you know, the, and, um, and just living that life. Um, 
that was miserable. And I, and it was, it's crazy when I think about it today was, you know, once you reach that place to where drugs are fun, when you choose to do them, when you have to do them, they're no longer fun. That, that enjoyment when you are, you have to do it. I mean, I think back today on that life. And even when I wrote the book, the first part of my book is pain, failure, misery, which is my story. And then it goes a step into the unknown and the stepping stones to success, which is, um, you know, a lot about like teaching people to think for themselves. Um, you know, um, but you know, when I wrote that story, it was, it was difficult in a lot of ways to even think about, remember what exactly happened, what was going on. I mean, my head was, is so foggy when I think back on it. Um, in the early part of 2001, I was, I had broken into a place that was similar to a Home Depot, um, and had actually done it many times. Um, I hadn't been there in a month and I decided to go back. Um, I, and one of the things that I was able to gather was, um, they had a shack in, in that place that had credit card numbers, um, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, names of people. I mean, it was for me with that lifestyle, it was the, it was a gold mine for me because I was, you know, I'd print checks and I was able to literally make credit cards. I had one of the, the things that you could stamp numbers on cards. Um, you could put whatever name you want on it. Um, I was making driver's license, fake IDs. Um, so I could become anybody um, that I wanted to. And it was amazing when I actually had names, addresses, social security numbers, birthdays, all that stuff that matched a single person. And so um, I was gathering all the, all of those things and um, went in there, went in there one night, uh, cut the lock, went inside, I got into the shack, I looked up on the roof, there was a flashlight, some guy, Orange County Sheriff's uh, freeze, of course, freezing was not what I was going to do. So I took off running. And I came around the backside. And of course, you know, if you realize one sheriff's there, there's probably going to be more. And I came around the corner and there was, I don't know, maybe 10 sheriffs out there. Um, and I decided just to lay down. And then this kind of reminds me of the situation, you know, that had happened recently with uh, uh, the guy that uh, had died when they um, held down his neck, uh, Floyd. Floyd, the situation with that. And it really reminds me of it because I literally laid down and I had a deputy that came that just jammed his knee in my neck. I couldn't breathe. And I was trying to gasp for breath, you know, and he's telling me to freeze. And I'm like, you know, moving, I'm, I'm moving just to try to get air. Um, and they're, you know, they're threatening me with, uh, you know, um, evading arrest and all this stuff. And, and, you know, and it was crazy. I mean, I literally thought too, at that point in time, they were, it was, they were going to kill me because I could not breathe. Um, and, uh, luckily I didn't. Um, but I did get arrested. They charged me with uh, commercial burglary. Um, I had a bunch of dope on me, so possession. Um, got to the Orange County Jail, went through the booking. And once they were taking us up to get housed, they called my name, uh, told me I had posted bail. And my girlfriend posted my bail. Um, so I got out and uh, 
most people, obviously you think, okay, now you're in trouble. So maybe you should stop what you're doing, but none of that mattered. You know, everything was about, okay, I need to keep going. And so I um, kept doing what I was doing. They set a court date 30 days later when you post bail. I showed up to my court case. The DA didn't follow my case. They dropped the charges and they exonerated your bail. They have, you know, they have to file on your case in a certain time. <laughs> so after that day of that court hearing, my girlfriend and I decided to go down to um, San Diego, went down there for the day, came back, and this was the day after that court hearing, came back, a girl called me, wanted to buy some dope, met her in Irvine, um, showed up, handed her the dope, she handed me the money, got in the car, and I drove, and I started driving. I pulled up to the light to get onto the freeway, cop pulled up behind me, and just as I was getting ready to get on the freeway, he throws his lights on and um, tells me to pull off at the next exit. I pull off and he says, how much have you had to drink? And I said, I, I don't drink, which I really don't. Um, and he was accusing me of being drunk because apparently I had just crossed over the line a little bit, you know, waiting for the light. And, uh, so I get out, I get in the back, and he says, all right, I'm gonna have to do a sobriety check. And, uh, and he asked to, if he could search me and I didn't know what I had on me, so I told him no. And he said, all right, well, at least I need to pat you down. So he starts patting me down and he grabs my cigarettes out of my pack and uh, out of my jacket and he, open, he opens it up and then all I hear is, okay, now I have a reason to search your vehicle. And, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, what the fuck are you talking about? And so I turn around and he's holding the marijuana bud in his hand, which I didn't have. And I wasn't, I didn't smoke weed. Um, and I came to find out later, the girl that, that I sold to, she had gotten busted a couple weeks later. And I'm pretty sure that she was a part of that situation to set me up. Um, they of course didn't have any search warrants, so they had to do something. And, and so I'm pretty sure that that guy planted the weed in my cigarettes. Um, to give them a reason to search my vehicle. And my vehicle was a bust. I mean, it had drugs everywhere, scales, baggies. I mean, I had probably an ounce of weed that was stashed in my car. Um, they found all of it. They couldn't get into my trunk. They even tried to bust it with a lock buster and it never opened, um, which I was very grateful because that had all my computer stuff and everything I did to make checks and, and all that stuff. So, we uh, um, get arrested and um, get into jail. And this was on a Sunday. I slept for two days. Actually, it was a Thursday, I think. And I slept for two or three up to Sunday, I think I slept. And finally got up and I thought about my girlfriend. And so I had called a friend of mine to see if he could come up with the money to post for bail. I didn't know if he did. Um, but then Tuesday rolled around, they took me to court and it, they never called my name. They took me back and they just released me that night and came to find out again, the DA hadn't filed on my case yet. So, um, they had 72 hours to arraign me, didn't happen. So they let me go. Um, and I started, and I, I kind of thought later that all of this stuff was just a setup for me. 
um, because once I got released, I came to find out later that the narcotics task force was following me and trying to bust me and trying to see what they could get from me. Um, and the reason being is on September 10th of 2001, the day before the infamous September 11th that we all know of, um, I had pulled into this hotel. My girlfriend was in a, her, uh, my car. I was in her car. I don't know how many switched cars, but we pulled in. And the next thing I know, I got a gun at my head. And the guy's telling me, Orange County Sheriff's, um, we have a search warrant to search your vehicle. And I'd been through the search warrant situation before in 99. And I knew they had to present it. And so I asked him, okay, I'd like to see the search warrant. He said, okay, not now. I'll show it to you later. Orange County Sheriff shows me his badge again. And I said, no, I said, I want to see the search warrant. All right, you'll see it later. And never presented it. Um, of course, they handcuffed me. You don't have much choice in what they do at that point in time. So they found dope in my car. Um, found dope on her. And they, um, I had like, five fake IDs in my wallet. Um, they ended up, then they were saying, okay, they got a search warrant to search our room, which they never presented. They went into our room. They took tons of my stuff. And, uh, but then they ended up taking us to jail, booked us on possession charges because there wasn't anything big enough for, for sales or anything. And um, called our bail bondsman, posted bail again. We both, I uh, went to court 30 days later, the DA and bail on the case, dropped the charge, exonerated her bail. So at this point in time, you know, I'm thinking I'm, I'm invincible. You know, I've been arrested now at this point in time three, three times in, you know, what, four months or something like that, you know. And, um, and my girlfriend at this point in time just freaked out. She wanted to go to um, detox. And so I took her to a detox, dropped her off. And then this is when I started slamming meth. So I even took it to a whole new level. Um, I started, you know, kind of on an average of slamming an eight ball a day. Um, things just got crazier and crazier and crazier. Um, and then January 3rd of 2002, um, I was in a motel room in Anaheim. And I'd passed out this night, woke up. Um, got high, sat at the desk, and the next thing I know, I hear the key open, key opening the door, and it's the Detective Moy from the Orange County Sheriff's Task Force <laughs> coming in my room. Um, they ended up, of course, searching all my stuff and took me back to jail. So this was that fourth arrest, um, and I was convinced, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to completely stopped at this point. I'm not going to do any more. And it worked for a moment. You know, I, I, and it's crazy with cravings for it are something that a lot of people may not imagine with the extent of the amount of drugs that I was doing because they become so painful to a point to where you're ready to kill yourself. Um, you know, again, as I studied physiological effects, you know, we talk about the anhedonic state of, you know, major depression, which is, you know, like pleasure deafness and ability to experience pleasure. Um, and I was so depressed. Um, and 
the world was just like black and white, you know, I mean, there was no, and I saw nothing, um, no future for anything. And um, I called my dad, <clears throat> excuse me, I called my dad, I remember, and I was trying to get bail posted again. And I talked to my bail company and said, look, I need at least $1,000 to post your bail this time. So I called my dad and um, he said, you know what? I'm glad you're there, at least I know you're safe. And so I was stuck. Um, and I was hurt, you know. Um, I was also a cigarette smoker, so now I'm detoxing from cigarettes also. <laughs> um, and uh, so I went through that. Um, and this was at the point in time I was looking at 15 years in prison. Um, and um, but I had a really good attorney and I'd hired this attorney before I'd gotten arrested the last time. I was sort of thinking a little bit ahead. And so I had hired this attorney um, and he did great for me. I mean, he really did a good job. Um, they ended up getting me um, about nine months in county, which um, I did a little additional time because in lieu of some of the fees and fines, um, six months in a residential treatment program and uh, I had to do a DUI school because they charged me with DUI for that time because I had meth in my system. Um, and uh, three years probation. Um, and I remember that I'd gotten into a in-custody treatment program. So Orange County at that time had a in-custody program at one of the maximum security jails um, in Orange. Um, and so I got into that program and after being there for one month, I had another massive head injury. I got, um, I was sleeping on a top bunk um, and I had a nocturnal seizure rolled off the top bunk. And of course the grounds and jails are very solid, solid. There's no give to them. And it landed right on my face. I cracked my skull. Um, and, uh, and I came to in the hospital um, next door and I was shackled to the bed trying to, I remember I was like trying to reach my head just the pain, I was in and out of consciousness. And, um, and I ended up spending three days in the hospital. They sent me back to the main jail. Um, and after being there two weeks, they put me back in that program. The program had a huge perk to it because if you finish the in-custody program, you got six months free of a residential program afterward, which is what I was sentenced to, because I wasn't really exactly sure I was going to pay for treatment. And all of this stuff just seemed to sort of fall in line for me. Um, and so, and I remember the day that I was getting ready to get released, you know, my head was clear. I was, you know, I, I had eventually taken responsibility instead of blaming the cops for putting the weed in me, blaming the cops for searching me for, you know, without a search warrant, you know, putting all the blame on everybody else. And I finally reached this place where I started to, you know what, they saved my life. That's kind of where I had fallen into eventually at that point was no matter how painful it was and how difficult it was, these guys saved my life. Um, because I was 130 pounds, I'm six, almost six, four. 
um, six, three and a half. And, uh, and I weighed 130 pounds. I was literally skin and bones. Um, um, highly, you know, malnutritioned and, and, uh, and they saved my life. And this is also kind of where I, I started at this point in time, I felt more freedom than I'd felt most of my life. And I was in jail. And that's where it taught me that freedom doesn't come from anything external. It all comes from within. And that was a powerful lesson that I'd had. Um, and so I'd spent a lot of time in this program while I was in custody, working on my self-esteem and working on, you know, uh, again, the responsibility and, and, you know, looking at myself and studying myself. And yeah, I had a lot of time, you know, did a lot of reading too. And, and I remember the day that I was getting released and I was scared to get out um, because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, all of my other times and all of my times in the past, I would, I would have this, this intention of, okay, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do the right thing. But I'd walk out those doors and I de never did the right thing. And, and I was scared and I was, you know, I remember talking to one of the guys, I was like, well, man, maybe, maybe, a, you know, they'll file another case against me or something. I was literally, I was just okay with being in there. And, and then, and for some reason it was really odd because they called my name. Normally they let you go at, at like five, six in the morning and they let you, they release you. And I was still there at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. I was like 1130. I was still there. And they called my name and they said, Eric McCoy, you've got a new case filed against you. And they said that. And I was thinking, what the fuck? Right. And, uh, and what ended up happening, the reason I ended up not getting all of those years was that the case of the Sheriff's Narcotics Task Force that did take my stuff when I, they didn't have a warrant, that never did get filed. So, um, and then the other odd thing that I couldn't figure out was the one that they, the last arrest that I did have, they did have a legitimate reason because I had a warrant. I'd ran on all those cases when they finally refiled them. And so they legitimately had a reason, but they never filed any charges against me. And I don't really understand why, um, you know, they, cause they could have nailed me with another possession charge, multiple possession charges, you know, possession of stolen mail. And I mean, all kinds of stuff, possession of stolen property, nothing else got filed. And I don't know if maybe they felt bad for me. They, I don't know. And I still don't know to this day. Um, but that was one of the reasons. So it was only two of those cases that ended up getting, that I ended up pleading guilty to, which were six felonies. And so when they did, you know, when the, uh, deputy said that I, it didn't surprise me, you know, I'm thinking like, Oh, okay, maybe they did. I mean, you know, they definitely had another case I could have filed on and they let that hang for 30 minutes and then they kicked me loose. Um, and so I got out and I went into a program at Costa Mesa, Nancy Clark. Um, and that's where I was going to do the six months that I was court ordered to do. And luckily it was free. I didn't have to pay for it. 
um, because it was a part of that program. And I was so committed, you know, I was like, and I, you know, I got out, I was scared. I'm like, what am I going to do? I went straight to the program and I wanted it. I wanted to, to that different life. You know, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to, you know, be happy. I mean, I think that was like my biggest pursuit was I just wanted to be happy. Nothing else really mattered. It was just to be happy. And, uh, and I remember about halfway through that six months, um, I struggled a bit. And there were times I had cravings. And there was a time where I hopped in my car and I was ready to go find my old dealer. And I was driving down there. And uh, I got about halfway there and it just like, it clicked for me. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, because I did sign on a seven year prison term. So I had, you know, I'd taken that deal that they give me, but the only reason, the only way the DA was going to agree with that deal was I did have to sign on a seven year prison term. So they, they, it's a executed suspended sentence. So as long as I stay out of trouble, I don't actually have to do it. And, um, and so that kind of clicked in my head. I'm thinking like seven years. Okay. I'm turning back around, you know? And so I went back to the program and, uh, and then I ended up completing it and I decided that I wanted to go to school. That's kind of where, you know, things had gone. Um, and it was probably a long answer to that question you had. <laughs> yeah. Now there's a lot to unpack there. I'm, what I want to ask you, so what do you think changed? Because, you know, you, you had gone to treatment previously uh, and kind of not really taken it seriously and just kind of continued on. You know, what, what do you think? Did, was it just really bottoming out in jail that, that caused you to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually take this seriously this time? Or? You know, it really didn't have anything to do with jail. Jail didn't scare me, you know, jail, jail never really bothered me in a sense. I mean, I was okay with it, you know. Um, I was okay with going to prison. I mean, they had, you know, the original, the, the original offer was um, seven years in prison. And, um, you know, I was looking at that 15, they, they said, okay, look, we'll, we'll give you seven. Um, but my attorney goes, you know, well, we can probably get you three. I can probably get you three years, you know. And so that's kind of where I was at. I was ready to sign on three years, plead guilty to it and sign on three years. Um, and, but, but I think what really happened was, was that, you know, I started really looking at myself. I mean, I started really, you know, analyzing the path that I was headed down. Um, and, I learned that, you know, people, again, people get sober because of what they don't want, but people stay sober because of what they do want. And it's something that kind of dawned on me when I was in there, you know, I was thinking like, okay, I don't want to go to prison the rest of my life. You know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And at some point in time, I started thinking like, you know what, what do I want though? You know, what do I want? And, and again, it really went back to, and this is sort of my podcast, High Walk Clean, you know, was that 
And I, and I literally did. I found this in jail because I started laughing. Like I'd never laughed before while I was in there. You know, my head was clear. Like a, that responsibility that I took that, you know, I'd be, I tried to distance myself from all the people that had no intention of doing anything good in their life, you know, but I did start associating a little bit with some of the people that had, you know, were like, okay, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to do something good, you know? Um, and, and so I started laughing like I'd never laughed before, you know? And like, there were times I remember I was laughing till I was crying. I felt high. I felt a highness, you know, that um, that felt good. It didn't have those side effects, you know? And that was kind of like my premise was that, you know, highness is not a property of drugs, it's a property of people. I realized too that drugs, all they do is actually destroy your ability to actually get high, you know, as they're destroying your neurons and your dopamine, and your, you know, it's different, you know, and, um, and so, and that's kind of where I kind of came up with that premise too, that everything that I was looking for in my life, I've been able to find clean and sober, you know? And, uh, and that's where things I think started changing for me, you know, was I actually got curious about things, you know? Um, I, you know, my parents would come visit me and, um, you know, we, we had great conversations and stuff and, and, uh, and something, you know, it's like, it's kind of hard to explain a little bit, but, you know, something changed within me. Um, and I, I did, I just all of a sudden had this, this interest to have a purpose. I wanted to have some kind of purpose. I have a chapter in my book called let's get spiritual, you know? And which is one of those, you know, and I kind of did it that because, you know, that's one of the things that most people run from when they first get into rehab. It's like, oh my God, spirituality, you know, I don't know, what does that mean? You know, kind of thing. And, uh, and so, you know, it's like you look up spirituality and spirituality says, you know, to have, you know, to be spiritual. Right? You look up spiritual and say to have spirit, right? But when you get to the spirit part, that's when it gets, it means something. You know, spirit is defined as there's a lot of meanings to it, but the one that really kind of latched on to me was to have a meaning, to have a purpose in life. What is it that, why am I here? And that's kind of, and even when I was in custody, that's how I started thinking about it, you know. Um, in that in custody program I was at was when re things really started to change. Um, and I, I met the right people. It really like, there were great people in there in custody, I mean, the jail, you know, the, the inmates, you know, that's some great people in there. Um, and, um, you know, you kind of come to realize too that drug addicts are not necessarily stupid people, you know, it's like kind of the epitome of what a lot of people think, you know, like, you know, addicts are just dumb, stupid people, you know, kind of thing. And it's actually not the case at all. Um, you know, they, and I, and I always kind of felt too, like, you know, I've always been sort of an intuitive thinking outside the box kind of person. That's sort of kind of the way I've always been. Um, I, I've always been that too, like, why, you know, 
like you know that that curious you know type individual which definitely led me down that path you know don't do drugs why like, i'm gonna go try it you know you know kind of thing and that, that just say no motto of nancy reagan you know which was kind of during my upbringing didn't really uh sit well because it really fails to take into consideration the mind's desire to want to understand you know um and so that's that's i think really what a lot of what happened with me was i just started um once my head cleared up um i started uh, was curious about a different life i wanted to do something different you know everything in my life drugs all drugs did was you know created misery for me it went from these are the greatest things in the world they've solved all my problems you know to life is the is just dark and gloomy you know because originally it made it bright it made it colorful it made it wonderful you know but then as you continue doing it you just start going deeper and deeper into the depths of hell um you know that is almost, almost literally seems impossible to get out of you know and i think that was the freedom part for me too it was part of that freedom is that oh my god this stuff doesn't have that hold on me anymore you know um you know another another thing i wanted to ask you about you you had mentioned like in in prison like meeting people that that you kind of clicked with and bringing this back to i know you know kind of starting off the narrative you talked about kind of growing up kind of feeling socially isolated that you didn't really uh fit in with people and and maybe that kind of caused or uh i don't know do you do you feel that that finally kind of being able to connect with those like did you feel like that was a big part in kind of your recovery i think it was and i think part of the connection was that you know i'm with people that have been through this you know so now all of a sudden you know i'm associating with people that they understand and it's kind of i think part of what it was you know it was like all of a sudden okay you know they understand what, where we're at today you know um and i wouldn't say all the people in that program were serious about what they were doing some of them did it just for you know the, the wrong reasons but i was able to find the ones that really did you know that we're doing this for the right reasons and i do think it was that connection and all of a sudden okay now i do have a connection with with these people but there is a difference too between that time and the other time because obviously i'd been in rehab before so i've been connected with other people that quote unquote understood um but i didn't want to be completely sober you know um and i'll tell you it's you know like today i'm completely sober right completely off everything i don't do except monsters and coffee and stuff like that i mean during you know <laughs> um but um i didn't want it you know and i and i even think today you know that you know you think about like some of the drugs that are non-addictive right lsd being one of those you know i mean lsd mushroom you know some of those other ones are not addictive because of 
you know, uh, number one, like LSD, is you're, you're doing, you know, micrograms, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny amounts. Um, and I've always thought to be like, man, it's just great just to be able to do that periodically. And I don't, you know, the reason I don't do it is because I do know that if I do do that, my mind will change. You know, I will start to rationalize other things. Um, you know, today I have to keep a very clean um, mind that is um, thinking straight. It's interesting you bring that up because I was actually going to ask you that question as far as, you know, now, nowadays we're kind of like hearing about, you know, some of the potential mental health benefits of, you know, LSD or psilocybin mushrooms. And I was just wondering, you know, do you think, was it purely negative or do you think there were any positives of some of your, your drug use in that regard? LSD, we, I, I absolutely loved. Um, never had a bad experience. Um, now, you know, and I've done a lot of this, you know, kind of read a lot of the articles and stuff on, you know, what they are looking at, you know, uh, MDMA, you know, obviously was used, MDA was used for, you know, marriage counseling, you know, therapy and stuff like that until, you know, the federal government scheduled it you know as a wand um to make it illegal but um you know it, it, it's it's interesting with me was that you know lsd is one of those drugs that it is for me is fun it's not something that you know i mean you've got people that have bad trips um there is a lot of evidence to show that if you are predisposed to like schizophrenia or some of these other ones it could trigger it um, because of the, um, you know, the massive alteration of your neurotransmitters. Um, but for me, it was, it was never a bad experience. And, um, but I don't do it today, again, because, you know, it does, it would change my thinking on things, you know, part of it being like, oh, man, I've used a drug now, so, you know, now might as well try something else. Um, but at the same time, it really was never a trigger in the past for me to do other things. Um, and again, it is classified as non-addictive. Um, you know, uh, actually, I, I think the DEA is classified MDMA, uh, psilocybin, um, LSD, all of those is non-addictive. Um, but and I, and I kind of laugh about, you know, a lot of the whole, you know, especially like the 60s and mentality and so, you know, it's like, oh, it expands your mind, you know, kind of thing. And of course, I remember back when I was doing a lot of it. Uh, yeah, I had these, you know, brilliant ideas and things like that. I even wrote down things sometimes and, you know, but then I'd read it when I was off it. Like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, this doesn't even make any sense. Um, but you know, there, there is a lot of people out there that do think that there is a lot of benefit behind it, um, for various things. Um, I am somebody that is all about harm reduction. Um, you know, if people want to do it and it's not going to harm society or do anything like that and, 
you know, you should have the choice to do that. You know, um, I am, I am big on harm reduction just because, you know, I mean, even when you look at, you know, like, um, you know, um, with opiates, you know, the like Suboxone or Subutex or some of these other ones that people are doing maintenance programs on, if it helps, great. You know, um, there's a lot of counselors out there that think that, no, you can't do that because if you do that, you're not clean. Okay, but if it's helping you, then have at it. You know, and that's kind of the way that I stand on this. I mean, I personally, again, for me, my recovery, my personal thing is I got to be off everything. Otherwise, because I've tried all the other routes, you know, I've tried the just doing heroin or just, <laughs> you know, kind of scenario. Um, and it doesn't work for me. Um, so that's my path. But this may not be your path, you know, or this may be, you know, or other people, um, you know, and I don't really see how it's my purpose to tell you what I want for you, you know, because that's your life. You're, you're the one that should be able to decide where you want to go in life. You know, as a counselor, you know, I'm all about teaching people, educating. I love, you know, I'm a big fan of education and self-responsibility. You know, I'll teach you all of the stuff. I'll talk to you about, you know, the, um, the pros and cons and, and, you know, um, you know, how to raise your self-esteem and how to learn to think for yourself and, you know, learn to, you know, I'm all about personal power and all of this stuff, but then you're going to make the decision, you know, um, and hopefully you make a good one. And that's kind of where, you know, where I stand on it. I don't get all bent out of shape, you know, because there's a lot of counselors that get highly burnt out because they work so hard to get them to do what they want. You have to do the 12-step program. If you don't do the 12-step program, you're screwed, you know, or you're going to relapse. That's not true. That doesn't necessarily mean that's true. Um, that may be your path, but it may not be their path. Sure. In, in terms of your, so I really like the, the, uh, title of the podcast high wall clean tell me like were there did you find any like activities or hobbies like things that could give you that same kind of rush that you felt with drugs but while being sober yeah so um so this concept of high wall clean you know when we look at okay what are we actually getting high on well we're getting high on dope you know it's the concept that again highness is not a property of drugs, it's property of people. All drugs do is they manipulate our chemicals, which is what we get on, right? Um, you don't get high on cocaine, you get high on dope, dopamine, you know? And that's what you're getting. And we possess them, right? We possess them. Um, opiates, you know, they mimic our own endorphins, which in turn release dopamine, right? And that's the normal process is endorphins get released and then you get a release of dopamine and that's, you know, so that's where people get a runner's high, right? So you can go out and run, you can exercise. If you want to find the, the closest thing to a heroin high, you know, is go out, run a couple miles, right? And you're going to have a similar um, high that you would experience from heroin, right? You'll get a release of endorphins and then you'll get the release of dopamine. That's the runner's high you're talking about. Now you have to change your perception of what 
high is that, right? Uh, because again, and, and the way that I try to promote this idea is that, you know, you know, we we need to change that perception because again, if you feel that drugs are going to be what's going to do it for you, you're going to let yourself down because it's not going to work long term. You know, when we look at the longer term picture, you're going to be you're going to be down in depression or that anhedonic state, and you're not even going to be at normal. You know, so um, but yes, there are. Um, you know, I did a, I did one of them called Let's Get Let's Get High, and I go through this ridiculous, insane laughing. It's just myself, and I'm laughing till I turn purple, <laughs> right? And I'm laughing so hard my stomach's hurting, um, and that's a great high right there. You know, um, my wife and I used to go to um, for the COVID thing. We used to go to the uh, the improv or the comedy clubs. You know. Um, we usually go to one at least once a month, you know, um, and we get high. Music, you know, music's a big thing. Um, you know, I love, I love to sing. I love to, um, you know, play the guitar, and uh, and there's a highness there. You know, I've been, I had a couple people on um, that are involved in Rock to Recovery. So Rock to Recovery is. Um, you know, a bunch of musicians, professional musicians that go out to treatment programs and they bring music to them, right? And so this guy, Clinton Colton, who's uh, the guitarist for DI, um, I had him on. Um, Wes Gear, who was the, uh, who's one of the guitarists for Korn. Um, he's actually the one that started it. And I, I did a podcast with him. And I talked about that idea, you know, about, you know, how music, that's how we get high. That's a way you can get high, you know. Uh, Ziplining is another one. I love to zipline. Um, down here in Southern California, there's uh, Wrightwood, and Wrightwood has just the most insane ziplining course. It's freaking amazing, you know. Um, and doing things like this, you know, when you look at when you look at how do we get release of the dopamine? Why do we have dopamine? Right. So dopamine is a survival neurotransmitter. Right, dopamine is is um, you know was a gift from God, you could say, right, to give us enjoyment in life, you know, and so you know it's a um, you know when you eat food, you get a release of dopamine. When you drink water, when you're thirsty, you get a release of dopamine. Right now, a lot of these are also when you look at all the addictive behaviors that people can fall into. They're the same thing, you know? So like you get a really still me when you eat Well, we've got overeaters, right? That just, you know, they use that to comfort themselves and to feel that. Um, sex, right? Which is how we, you know, procreation, right? Save our species, right? Um, sex, obviously there's dopamine here, you know, with pleasure. Um, and, uh, but I've found it, I found this ability to, find a highness in almost everything that I do, you know? Like we're here, we're talking right here. I feel great, you know? I feel really good talking to you. Um, you know, I teach in a school, you know? I teach and I, I love to get up and I love what I teach, you know? And I'm passionate about what I teach. And uh, 
it gives me a sense of highness. Um, and so there's, it's it's about, you have to change your perception a little bit on what highness is, you know, but it's one thing I'm trying to do is really to, to get the word out there that, you know, because so many people that go into rehab and they're like, oh my God, I got to give up my drug. Life's going to suck. Life's going to be boring, right? I'm never going to enjoy anything anymore. Well, the truth is, is right there during that detox in a period, that's true. You're not going to. Let's stick it out a little bit. You know, stick it out so your brain can heal itself, neuroplasticity, right? Start rewiring itself. And we start to get those reconnections going. And, uh, and then we change our perception of what highness is, but it's not about giving up getting high. It's just we do it differently together, you know? But we do it in a way that's real because the reality is, again, everybody thinks that I'm getting high on cocaine. No, you're not. I'm getting high on methamphetamine. No, you're not. You know, the pleasure you're feeling is, is something that you have within you. That's what you're feeling. Right, right. Awesome. Well, Eric, we're coming up onto the end of the show. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story um, today. Anything uh, that we haven't covered that you think is important to the listeners just related to anything that we talked about? You know, I really, you know, with people out there that are struggling, and I know a lot of people obviously that are struggling with subsidies probably aren't going to listen to this, <laughs> but, you know, maybe you have, maybe there's family members or other people out there that can kind of, you know, look at this idea. Um, but you know, getting, you know, if people can have an opportunity to talk to somebody that, you know, has been through it, that can help guide you, you know, um, is, is I think really what it takes to move in the right direction, you know, um, and it's one thing I always say on my um, thing, and I want to throw this out real quick, but anybody can get a hold of me if anybody is interested and they just want to talk. Um, my email address is e mccoy so e m c c o y at highwallclean.org. Um, my website is highwallclean.org, <laughs> um, and uh, and so anybody can reach out to me. Um, you know, and you know, for people that are listening to this, I know how scary it is to get off drugs. I know the concept of, you know, the between a rock and a hard place, you know, that idea where, you know, I know that if I keep doing it, it's going to kill me. But I know that if I stop, that's going to kill me too. Even though it's not true, but that's what we believe, you know, um, and that's where it gets really tough. Um, and so the reality being is you're going to have to take a risk, you know, you're going to have to take a risk and it's not easy. This is where courage comes into play, you know, but no matter where you've been or what you've done, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. You know? Well said. Awesome. Well, Eric, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show today and, and just sharing your story. So I really appreciate your time and, you know, it's a really wild life that you lived and you glad that you're here today to kind of share your story and reflect back on it. So 
Yeah, I want to thank you very. I want to thank you very much for for having me on here. Absolutely. Hope you guys enjoyed this edition of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. If you did, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. If you guys did enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, go ahead and search in Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And if you could write a review, that would be greatly appreciated.